Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, coming to you this week from the COP28 climate talks in Dubai. And I'm joined here in Dubai by an Energy Gang regular, Amy Harder, who is the executive editor of Cypher, which is the news publication produced by Breakthrough Energy. And that's the Clean Energy Network, which was founded by Bill Gates. Amy, thanks very much for joining us. You're very welcome. Happy to be here. Yeah, great to see you in this uh, unfamiliar location, familiar face in an unfamiliar location. Uh, great to see you here. Yeah. And also we're joined by uh, Amy's colleague, Bill Spindle, who is the uh, chief correspondent for Cypher as well. Bill, thanks very much also for joining us on the Energy Gang today. Great to be here. So, Amy, we've only just arrived actually here. We're coming on day four of the COP. You've been here right since the beginning. What have your impressions of it been so far? What have you made of uh, the way the conference has unfolded in the first few days? Well, one thing that has really struck me is just how much bigger and such a production this is. Now, that's for two reasons. One, we're in Dubai, which is an extremely opulent city in the desert. So you have that dynamic, which I think we should talk about because it's interesting. But secondly, the climate debate has evolved to a place where there's trade shows and there's companies and there's just everybody is surrounding these negotiations. And one fact to kind of put this into perspective is the Paris uh, COP, um, which is COP21, which, of course, the Paris Climate Agreement was signed in 2015. I think it was about a record. It was a record breaking number at the time of about 40,000 people. This year, there's more than 100,000 people. So that's just shocking to see how many more people uh, there are here now today compared to what was then a record number. And that's a sign of a result of the, the Paris Agreement itself. It's, it's beginning this slow turn to a whole new economy of clean energy. Now, the, the fossil fuel economy is by no means behind us, obviously. It's front and center with this oil-rich host. But just the, the sheer amount of trade show-esque type exhibits all around this, this expert city complex, which for reference is larger than Central Park, uh, to give you a sense of how big it is and why I and everybody else who knows anything should be walking around in tennis shoes and nothing else. So that, those are some of my first impressions and happy to dive in more. Yeah, thanks very much. So, I mean, as you say, just thinking about the scale of it and the way that the COP has become a trade show, as you say. Um, so we're currently sitting in the blue zone, which is sort of the area where the real negotiations uh, go on. And that's where people from the UN and from the 200 odd countries that are represented here actually talk about concrete outcomes that they want to come out of the COP, then there's something else which is called the green zone. And as you say, that's basically a great big exhibition, trade show, lots of corporate stands there and so on. I have heard people be critical of that and basically say that it's turned into a circus. People are talking about it as the green Davos. People say it's this thing which is dominated by corporate voices. It was interesting. I noticed a protest just as we were walking in earlier today and certainly sort of opposition to corporate interests in the COP is a very kind of live theme. And people say, how can you really expect to get anything done that is serious in terms of climate policy, in terms of actually making a material difference to the global energy system and to the course of greenhouse gas emissions if corporate voices are so dominant? What do you think about that? Do you think there's something in that critique? I certainly do. And I, I, that's a critique we hear on all policy issues, right? No matter climate change, healthcare, general technology, there's always that understandable critique of corporate influence. In this case, I think that most of the criticism is going on the fossil fuel companies, 
rightly so. And another interesting fact is that Darren Wood, the CEO of ExxonMobil, is actually the first ever Exxon CEO to attend COP. Uh, and as far as I understand, talking to people that I know close to Exxon, they've really never come to a COP before at all, which is a little bit interesting to say the least. You would think they would have come to previous COPs since Paris. Uh, so I think that criticism is is valid. Um, you know, I sort of waffle between agreeing with that and thinking, hey, let's not lose sight of why these cops exist to the other side, which is that this is what humanity does. We gather and things get bigger and there's just this tendency for corporations to jump in when they think they can make money. And is that a bad thing? Ultimately, maybe not. But I do think there's a risk of going overboard at some point. So, Bill, you live in the UAE. How do you feel about this massive show coming to town? Yeah, well, it's it's uh, it is a, a massive extravaganza, which uh, in Dubai here they're particularly good at putting on. Yeah, I think also the UAE. This is a, is is a country that's really aspired to a larger role on the global stage, and COP has been a, a big piece of that over the last couple of years, putting together this whole thing and playing a, a larger role and obviously a pretty tricky and difficult one for a, a hosting a climate conference as one of the world's largest oil producers and gas producers in the world. So that's been a challenge for them. And I think they've learned some things along the way um, and the world's learned a bit about them along the way. Because that's also been quite a focus of criticism, right? Is people saying this is not the right place to be holding a cop, that Dr. Sultan Al-Jabba, who's the president of the talks, is also chief executive of Adnok, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, and people say that role puts him in a very exactly. compromised position, right? And their argument on the other side is that the oil and gas industry and fossil fuels constitute such a large percentage of the uh, emissions profile of the world that they need a larger voice in solving these problems. They have skills that can go to it. That's the argument on the other side. And that's kind of what set us up for the COP we're really about to to experience, particularly in the, the second half, I think, when things are really going to get down to nuts and bolts about this question of the role of fossil fuels. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I want to come on to that in a moment. As you say, it does seem like that question of the future role of fossil fuels is going to be absolutely central in kind of the business end of the talks, which tend to be the, the second half. The first half, it's all the, the showbiz and the world leaders come. That's the razzmatazz end of things. And the real negotiations come later once all the world leaders have left. It, just in terms of what we've seen already in terms of sort of substantive outcomes from COP28, is there anything you'd point to? Is anything struck you as important yeah. so far? Yeah, so between the way these scops work is there is there's this gargantuan trade show, extravaganza, world leaders going on. But beneath it all, there is a work program. And, the, and I would say, uh, for, at least from the UAE's perspective, it's gone pretty well so far. Um, they avoided what really could have been a nasty battle over funding from the developed world to the developing world, money from rich countries who largely caused the climate problem to poorer countries that need the money and didn't cause the climate problem. That's been a tension throughout the entire 30, 40 years of, of climate diplomacy. That could have derailed the whole thing. But they actually came to a pretty a, a compromise agreement at the beginning that's allowed that to get settled. So they've set up this loss and damage fund um, which is, you know, a specific fund that is dedicated to channeling money from the wealthy countries 
to the poorer countries. It's a lot more complicated than that, but basically that's what it yeah, is. Yeah, but but the amounts seem pretty tiny, right? I mean, what 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 have we had pledged so far? It's been I think four hundred and twenty million dollars. I think we're was... up to six or seven hundred million. But yeah, it's a tiny tiny drop in the bucket. But there's a principle underlying all this of equity and fairness that that really goes to the. It's it's really the issue that killed the Kyoto Protocol, which is what preceded the Paris Agreement, um, and defined climate negotiations for years. But that kind of blew up over this issue of equity between the, the developed world and the developing world. They came up with a new framework, the Paris framework, which is a more we're all going to try as best we can. Uh, we're going to work together. Um, but these equity issues have continued to crop up. And they really got to the point right before this COP where they uh, there were quite a few people worried that it was going to blow the whole thing up. Uh, they came to an agreement under a lot of uh, hard work by the Emiratis just before the COP started, that deal was not reopened, which was a surprise to people when we got here at COP. They got that passed and we moved on. I think they all agreed to battle another day, but there is a workable framework. We can talk about it if you want, but we got past that. As you say, it does look like the number is tiny compared to the need. Obviously, estimates of the damage done by climate change vary widely, but certainly I've seen numbers running into the many tens of billions, some estimates running into the hundreds of billions every year. So 600 million odd, 700 million, whatever it might be. A teeny tiny drop in the bucket of what's going to be needed. Um, but I think everyone decided enough of a start on both sides that better not to potentially ruin the whole conference and undermine the whole Paris framework. Um, so move on. And so they did move on. And, and there, so we talked about some other sums of money that came up. Then we moved into some pretty substantive agreement. There was a big uh, kind of uh, mixed financing fund of about $30 billion that was pledged that involved some big private financiers, that sort of thing. Yeah. So tell me about that then. So that was something which is this kind of, this is private investment funds what intended to invest in low carbon energy decarbonization efforts in general in lower-income countries. Is that right? Yes. And, and just generally, there's just the, the sums of money, as we just discussed, are so huge that, that certainly, you know, government-to-government money doesn't even come close to covering it, even at the maximum you could imagine. You need a lot of private funding. And a lot of this is, is then going to be leveraged by what are called these multilateral development banks, the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the African Development Bank. They bring in by, by helping de-risk some of this, some of the government money comes in, then maybe the private sector can come in with the real, with the real money. And the real money in this case is a, fiction, a figure of, of, say, $30 billion, which is a kind of notional figure. But, but that's getting into the level of funds that make a difference, though still far short of what's needed. Right. And this famous uh, $100 billion a year that was meant to flow from rich countries to uh, low and middle income countries in order to finance emissions reduction and adaptation to climate change. That was meant to include always the idea was that would include private sector money as well. That was not all meant to be money coming from governments. And so, as you say, if you get this kind of 30 billion, if that actually happens, that's pretty significant on that scale of private capital flowing. And then the other really significant thing that's happened in the last day is is some some, it's really kind of beginning to form into what it was always going to be, which is kind of the fossil fuel, oil and gas uh, cop for better or for worse, depending on on your perspective. Um, and in, we did see some pretty significant 
potentially very significant deals in things like methane, um, which is a, a super potent greenhouse gas that hasn't been talked about a lot before two years ago. Um, for the first time, the oil and gas industry this week did step up, make some commitments. Exxon even jumped on board. Um, I think it was 50 companies that 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 put together a pledge that they they would eliminate methane uh, leaks, methane emissions. Uh, methane is something that is is often leaked out of the infrastructure of refineries and stuff, but also just vented into the atmosphere because it's associated with oil production often. Um, and they either vent it right into the atmosphere or just burn it. Just to play devil's advocate here, um, it's also my understanding though that critics have pointed out that that's primarily focused on the operational emissions and doesn't cover what's known as scope three emissions of what's actually burned by people driving vehicles, for and example. And this is and what's that's going to biggest... be, this is where we're moving, right? It, basically, the oil and gas industry has stepped up, I think, partly in preparation for the second half of this COP, which begins, you know, the day after tomorrow or so, where the focus is really going to be on, so far, they've stepped up, and as Amy points out, they've, they're have they just talking about their own operations. Um, you know, we're, we're going to decarbonize the, the greenhouse gases we emit as part of the process of finding mining, pumping oil and gas. But the obviously the much, much bigger question is the emissions that come from the burning of fossil fuel, the use of fossil fuel, which, uh, you know, is is a is a kind of a global issue. And that's where the whole cop is really, I think, going to the attention is going to turn. Um, and that's going to be a very interesting, I think, personally, a productive and important debate, frustrations on all sides. Uh, but th that's because it's so important and, and uh, this is really the heart of the matter. And where do you two come out on this one then? I mean, as you say, this seems to be the fundamental, it's a fundamental kind of philosophical divide, if you like, in global energy in general. And it's going to be a very crucial point of debate in this COP, probably the central issue for the rest of the COP. What do you think? Uh, I think you, there, there are extremes on both sides of this. And without even saying either extreme is wrong, you know, there's there's a side that sort of sees the idea that, that we could do anything but grow fossil fuel production over the next uh, 20 to 30 years simply to meet developmental needs around the world, particularly of poor populations. So they see it's going to grow. Uh, on the other side of the spectrum is a, is a group of climate activists, a advocates that really don't see any reason why within a few years from now we couldn't just be eliminating fossil fuels altogether. Those are really difficult things, really impossible things to do on both sides of that debate. But in the middle, I do think there is an important and and reasonable debate going on about how is this transition going to take place? Is it going to be a, a fairly organic, largely market-driven, not very socially disruptive process on the one hand? Or to what extent are we in a really an emergency crisis situation that this needs to be pushed along um, and and pushed in a, in a way that might cause some some disruption here and there that might involve government action as opposed to just uh, market based forces. And I think that's really the debate and that's got to be had at the end of the day. I think an interesting anecdote to illustrate the tensions at play is the latest positions that the International Energy Agency has taken and some of the reaction that we've heard from that. So. Let me just check the exact quote, which I pulled up on my phone here. There's been all this talk about supply and demand and that what senior oil executives have said is that, quote, 
when the energy world changes, so will we. But the IEA says in response to that, that that's not an adequate response, that the oil companies actually have to step up and help reduce demand. Although, you know, critics would say, why would a company step up to encourage reduction of demand for their product? That's not how capitalism works. But nonetheless, I found this report very pointed and really is setting us up for an interesting debate. Another thing this report says is that many producers say that they will be the ones to keep producing throughout transitions and beyond. They cannot all be right. I've called this the fossil fuel game of crude musical chairs and that, you know, all these fossil fuel producers think they're going to win this game and be the last one, but they can't all be. The ones that will likely be, which Bill and I have talked about, probably will be the producers here in the Middle East because they can do it very cheaply and, relatively speaking, cleanly. Uh, but in response to this IEA report, OPEC uh, released a pretty critical statement to IEA saying, uh, we think you have a very narrow perspective and don't vilify us for the climate crisis. And so this dynamic between IEA, which frankly, let's not forget, it was set up to protect energy security after the 1973 oil crisis. So it's interesting that this is where we're at today. And so that to me is a very interesting dynamic and something that I'll be watching for the next few days. Because, Amy, you're going home now, I gather. You're not going to see out the, the talks to the bitter end. But as you say, in terms of what you're going to be looking out for then, it's that question of this debate over the future of fossil fuels. You think that's the, the crucial issue that people should be keeping an eye on? Certainly that uh, and, and the finance stuff, which is sort of the eat your vegetables part of this debate. It's a little boring but extremely important, which is why you should all go to cyphernews.com and read our great series we have on it. Us, um, spearheaded by Bill. Um, but those are the two sort of parallel things that I'll be looking at. And layered on top of the oil debate is the development of new technologies and the, the question of when will new technologies, renewable energy, but also other types of clean energy, when will that begin to actually supplant fossil fuels? Because for now, we've just had an energy addition and we need an energy transition. Thanks. So, Bill, you're sticking it out till the bitter end. What are you going to be looking for and what are you going to be watching most closely in these last remaining days of the COP? I think Amy's put her finger right on it is, you know, any way you I think when you get past the bombast on all sides, uh, any way you do the math, demand for fossil fuels is absolutely going to have to fall. It's really a question of how fast and replaced by what and how disruptive will that process be? And I suspect what I'll be watching for, you're not going to see a solution, a resolution to this debate over over phasing out fossil fuels altogether versus using even more of them over the next 20 years. They're not going to settle that in the next week. But I do think the UAE is cutting a middle path that is not necessarily satisfactory to any side. I'm not even sure it's the right solution, but it's basically let's focus on promoting renewable energy as much as we can. And to a certain extent, this is going to be obviously part of the big solution is the, is boosting the replacements, the clean alternatives to fossil fuels and eventually pushing them out of the system. And the debate is around how fast can you do that? How do you pay for it? And I think that's where, you know, they the, the goal that we haven't talked about that they did throw out, and I think will be adopted as a tripling of renewable energy. Uh, that's certainly part of the solution. That's not going to be the full solution. And for listeners to this podcast and for people watching COP28 around the world, what's the one thing do you think that people should take away as a message from this? I mean, in terms of how optimistic or pessimistic should people be that the world is actually 
getting to grips with this problem, that we are taking the real steps that need to be taken to avoid absolutely catastrophic outcomes for climate change. What's your takeaway? Yeah, I think Amy said it at the beginning is is that the fact that there are 100,000 delegates here at, at the very least points to the, the underscores that people understand this is a really serious problem that needs to be taken on. Whether you should be optimistic or pessimistic, uh, that glass half full, half empty debate is a is is a tough one, and and everybody kind of has to approach that from where they are. But I think, you know, the hope is there'll be some progress out of this, and that progress needs to accelerate. And I suppose you could say it's like that the old metaphor of the bicycle: you have to keep making progress forwards, otherwise you fall over. And certainly, touch wood, so far it seems like that forward progress is being maintained. Amy, what about you? What would your one takeaway be? Well, I think something a lot of people are probably seeing when they turn on the TV or uh, they look at social media is just the extravagance of this. And I know we talked about that in the beginning, but I think it bears repeating because I understand and I, I see the perspective of people who think this has gotten a little bit out of hand. At the same time, the alternative is people don't show up at all. Larry Fink doesn't come and ex, you know, Darren Woods doesn't come. And ultimately, we want people paying attention to this. We definitely need to make sure there's no greenwashing, which the, I'm sure there'll always be some. But I think even if some of this can be cringeworthy to people observing a climate conference with all this, you know, carbon emitting activities, I think it's ultimately part of perhaps the, the, the inconvenient parts of our capitalistic system to finally start addressing it. Yeah, you know, if I throw one more thought at is that, uh, and I think cause for optimism is that I've covered these things a long time. There was a time when this climate diplomacy was kind of what drove climate action. Uh, that's really no longer, I don't think, the case. Really, what's being, what's driving it is private sector activity, real people on the ground doing real things. The energy transition is happening in a big way now. Um, Whatever gets discussed here in some ways, this could help it, could maybe hinder it a little bit. But the driving force, very different than 10 years ago or 15 years ago, is really the is people on the ground, businesses, governments actually doing things. That's hope. Um, well, that is a very optimistic note to end on. I think you're right about that, actually, Bill. And I think it's great to um, hear you uh, put it like that. This has been a great discussion to open our coverage of COP28 for the Energy Gang. Thank you both very much indeed for taking part of it. Great hearing from you. Thanks very much, Amy. You're very welcome. Great to be here in the flesh. Absolutely. Yeah. Great to see you in person and do have a safe trip home. Great to meet you, Bill, um, and have a great conference. Enjoy your time here for the rest of the COP. Hope you're still going in another week or so from now. I know it can get pretty grueling. Got it. We'll check back in then and see how it's going. But yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you. And Amy, we're going to be talking again uh, next week once the conference is over and rounding up everything that's happened to COP28. So I look forward to talking to you then. And thanks to you all very much indeed for listening. Um, we'll be back again very soon with all the latest news and views from what's happening at COP28. Until then, goodbye.